Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Bilal Zuberi is a general partner at Lux Capital. He is attracted to startups that solve big practical problems with technically ambitious solutions across industries such as enterprise software, deep tech, healthcare, and stages from seed to growth. He wants to back founders who are driven to build large, sustaining companies and believes technology can help address some of the world's largest problems. Bilal led Lux's investment in Applied Intuition, Ironclad, OpenSpace, Evolve, Desktop Metal, and so many others. Bilal, welcome to SolarPunk. Hey, so good to see you guys. So good to be talking to you. It's great to have you here. So to kick it off, you know, some of the companies that we just listed and more, right? We talk about Celdrone, Evolve, so many other amazingly impactful companies that you backed. How would you describe your investment thesis? Like what ties all of these different companies together? What are the core areas that you really look for when you're investing? You know, there's one thing that we say where Lux invests, and I'll talk about that first, which is investing at the intersection of technology and sciences. And the sciences could be biological sciences, and then you end up with all the healthcare and life sciences investments. That's about a third of what we do. There's physical sciences, which is really cutting edge technologies that make science fiction become reality from semiconductor chips to drone satellites, autonomous systems, autonomous cars, brain computer interfaces, and so on. Uh, and then it could be computer sciences, which is cutting edge work happening in machine learning, AI, and uh, you know NLP, um, cybersecurity, explainable AI, and so on and so forth. That's how we think about our investment portfolio and sort of thematically. But I think there's another way to think about this also, which is you know sort of at a personal level, I think about it as find interesting problems in this world that impact a lot of humans, uh, and hence you could also say represent a big TAM. Uh, but the most important thing is that it's a real practical problem and solve it using technology that addresses it directly and most efficiently. So using technology to uh, to solve problems um, that the society faces. And just to drill into that, I, I love that overview. It does seem like a lot of your companies, though, are some of the core tenets of what's behind SolarPunk, right? So creating a more prosperous world, helping push forward democracy and Western values and so on. Um, do you think that's just a coincidence or how does that fit together? It depends on, as an investor, what your experience has been and what you consider important in the world. I grew up in a part of the world where a lot of things that we take for granted in the U.S. simply were not available. You know, you did not have running water all the time. You didn't have electricity all the time, let alone the other things that we take for granted, such as our freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so on and so forth. So those are the things that we might in the U.S., an average American might say, you know, just whatever it is, whatever it is. But for somebody like me uh, that has come from there, come to this country, became a citizen here, those things are very precious. I think that they make America a very special uh, place. May not be the only country that is has those things, but certainly it's very special to who we are as a society. And, and I think I feel investing in maintaining, promoting, and keeping those values alive is really important. That includes security. That include, includes you know freedoms that we take for granted a lot in this country. Uh, that includes basic rights, you know, food, water, shelter, uh, mobility, healthcare. So in some ways, you can see that I am attracted to when I cons- what I consider to be a big problem is a big problem around the world that we in the United States have to be at the cutting edge of not only to make the human lives better in our own countries, but almost be an exporter of these technologies and these solutions worldwide to make lives around the world better going forward. Bilal, I, I wanted to double click on something that you said, because, you know, li- like myself, um, you're also an immigrant. You didn't grow up in this country uh, and you came, you chose to come here and then you actually chose to spend, you know, a good chunk of your life and your career furthering, uh, you know, well, backing these companies that further American uh, American values and, and, and protect the West. Why is it that you made that choice and, and why is it that that's so important to you? You know, first and foremost, I'm thankful to America for giving me the opportunity to do what I do, right? Here's a guy from a lower middle class family that comes into this country 
you know, funded by scholarships provided by, you know, government and uh, citizens of this country gets not only to educate through undergrad, but doesn't a PhD at a top institution funded entirely by, by this government. Uh, and then continues on to, you know, invent things and build companies and then invest in companies and so on. I think this is, this is not my success story. This is American success story. What I do now is really use that and say, how can I do this more with the highest amount of leverage available? How can I not just be inventing what I could invent myself, but be working with a lot of inventors in a lot of different spaces and aiding their ability to build new things and create new solutions and build new businesses and create new jobs. That's the opportunity that I've got. So that's what I invest in. So when I think of scale and when I think of venture returns, it's not just dollars and cents. Of course, they flow from you know, building great companies, but it's really building solutions that matter. It's building solutions that have impact on people. It's building companies that have lasting legacies, companies that will exist for decades, if not longer, companies that will keep innovating, companies that will keep creating solutions and, and opportunities for other people. I think the most amazing things that uh, we can do in venture today is use all the resources that we have. We have some of the best technologies in the world. We have some of the best universities in the world. We have the best technologists in the world. We have capital. We have companies that want to use and, 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 and put new technologies into action sooner rather than later. And we have, in some ways, access to global markets. Right? We should use that to really push the envelope, to do more, um, to say that it is not okay for a human being to have to toil away in labor in hot conditions to build a home. Let's build technologies that do that better. It's not okay for a single terrorist to be able to disrupt lives of tens or hundreds of families at any given time. Let's stop that from happening. Let's think about, you know, how can we use technology to really, you know, aid in not only reducing human suffering, but improving the lives of everybody that that's around it in such a way that we don't think of it as technology anymore. We just think of it as a better society to live in. And Bilal, how do you think that the you know investment climate for you know these broader industries in general, but specifically for aerospace and defense, is going to evolve evolve in the coming years? Um, you know, do you think we've hit some sort of tipping point that things are just going to continue to compound, or is it possible that a prolonged downturn would hit those industries much more than others? I think we live, unfortunately, in a much more insecure and much more chaotic and much more disturbed world than we have ever been in before. Now, of course, I was not there when the Second World War was fought, and, and certainly there was very chaotic and very disturbed times. But in my own life, you know, I've been around this world for 46 years, right? This is pretty, pretty terrible situations around the world. We have nexus forming around the world that may or may not be friendly towards each other. You know, we have China and Russia and Israel and Russia and Iran and, you know, China and all kinds of, you know, alliances forming that are not necessarily in alignment, not only with the U.S., but in some ways, U.N. and modern charter, you know, of human rights. So we have an unstable world, which means that we will need to make sure that our defenses are up so that we can protect our territories, but also our values globally. The second thing I'd say is that in terms of you know, technologies and war is, you know, I don't invest in space tech or defense tech because I want to go to war. I was actually on the streets protesting, you know, post 9-11 that we should not be going to war, right? Like certainly what good are we going to get dropping bombs on random Afghans or random Iraqis, right? So I am not a pro-war guy, but I think I do believe that you have to be ready to fight for what you believe in so that your enemies know that you're not going to let them overcome you and do whatever they feel like doing. Right? You have to prepare to not only be ready to fight at any given time, but to win any fight that comes your way. The fights that are coming our way are going to be extremely technology-driven. technology, technology driven. People have termed it the hyper-war. That technology-driven warfare, where there's a significant use of machine learning and AI and automation and autonomy and less use of humans, is going to require... Um, Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley related companies to be uh, participants and to be developing technologies that can be used in that. So I think that investment climate is only continue, going to continue to uh, grow. You know, 30, 40 years ago, technologies used to get developed for military first, then they would get used by the enterprises and eventually they will end up in the consumer's hands. Internet is a good example of that, right? 
But these days, that trend has completely reversed. Technologies are developed first for the consumers to use. You and I get access to it first, right? Think of the iPhone. Then it ends up in the enterprise. And then eventually, maybe several years later, military gets access to it. That reversal that has happened in the US over the last few years has not been good for us, has not allowed us to stay technologically as far advanced ahead of our uh, competitors and obviously our adversaries around the world. So that needs to change. And, and I think this particular generation of founders and entrepreneurs, and to be honest, as we were talking earlier, especially immigrant founders, have understood that that is not sustainable. We cannot walk away from it. We have to build. We have to be a part of the solution. We have to build technologies that enable us to win wars. And then we have to be active participants in conversations to say, when, where, and how should we be using these technologies? How should we use these technologies ethically? And how do we develop these technologies so that they're globally available to all our friends around the world as well? Allies, you know, the war that's going on in Ukraine, you know, US forces are not fighting a warfare directly on the ground, but we are using technologies to aid other people to fight for their freedoms because we believe that their freedoms were breached when somebody, um, you know, invaded their land. Love that overview. I think Lucas and I think of this in a very similar vein. I would say we think, in addition to how can we have technologies that will help us win wars, how can we also develop technologies that can prevent that, right? The idea, I think Trey Stevens has talked about this idea of deterrence um, and so on. And I think that's something very important as well. So below you, you list all of these, uh, I, I don't want to say uh, uh, scary components of the world, but definitely things that might keep you up at night. If you were to identify one of those areas that you're kind of most concerned about, or you think we need to focus the most on, what would you say that is? And then I'm curious how that's reflected in some of the investments that you've made or are looking to make. Look, we have a lot of threats. Some are centralized threats. Some are distributed threats. We have a centralized threat, you know, as a country like China, for example, that that is an adversity. I believe we are at war with China. It's just a different kind of a war. So if you really want to think about long-term, you know, we spent about 30 years or so outsourcing all our manufacturing, lots of our capabilities to China. How do we bring that back? And how do we make sure that we're independent of that? So I think that's, you know, that comes to my mind a lot. And that obviously in DOD circles and national security circles, that's an important issue. It has national security implications on literal warfare, where physical assets are trading fire with each other, but also in cybersecurity and supply chain security and so on and so forth. At the same time, you can also bring it very close to us. And, you know, you and I are talking a day after shooting in Texas when 19 kids and two teachers were killed. Like, this was not a foreign adversity. This was a crazy young man, maybe disturbed in his mind for some reason, going in the, going there and doing that. There are more than one shootings of this sort per day in America, right? Like, how do we prevent that? There are things that we can do. There are regulations, legislation we can pass, gun control laws that we can pass. What can we do about that? And then there's this other thing that's emerging that, frankly, we've only recently started to take very seriously, which is, you know, why does our own society feel so divided? And how do we prevent that from happening? So if you were to say, Bilal, what is one thing that is really attacking at the core of, you know, what has made us great? It is that division that right now exists in America. And a lot of that has to do with the disinformation that spread around the world. How do we stop this disinformation? How do we stop foreign agents from taking advantage advantage of that and spreading rumors and spreading nonsense that is not true? How do we make sure that internally we are not incentivized to do that? That is the real problem. Like if if I, you know, this is 10, 15 years ago, I'm sure those of us who were in national security circles back then talked about what would happen if somebody released a video speech of Osama bin Laden even though the government is saying he's dead, but there was a video release where he's giving a speech. Well, there are now technologies enable, uh, available that will enable you to do that, right? What would happen to, to security globally if that was done or in a systematic way by a foreign adversary? Now, that kind of shit is happening at a local level, right? Like right now, it's all, you know, for jokes and giggles, right? Like, you know, oh, you know, it could be, you know, Tom Cruise saying something that he didn't really say or George Bush or Obama saying something he didn't say. But tomorrow it could be, we could be in an emergency and information gets released that's not true, where a vast majority of the people believe it to be true and we take actions accordingly that may actually hurt us. So I think we have, we have a lot of work to do. And to be honest, it again goes back to 
technology it may not always be the end all be all solution but technology has a role to play in there um you know we started building cars and yes you people started dying in those cars so we started building technologies to prevent us from dying in those cars i think the same thing will happen here well so so many uh threads that we could pick up on there um i i'd be curious you mentioned the disinformation aspect uh you know i feel like 40 years ago people would talk about you know the things that KGB, KGB could be doing to the us in now in one way that feels like a part of the conversation you know there's a lot of people that talked about uh russia you know f- five years ago uh you know i think there's still some op- open questions about what what was there uh if it, to what extent that was real or not but you know my my perception perception has been that if you look at a lot of the moral panics that we have in the us today i feel like we're going to be sitting here five years from now and, and just being thinking like holy crap like we were being played and you know everything was trying to be magnified uh by by our enemies right and uh, you know there is a sun tzu uh, truism that you know the best wars are the ones in which you win without even w- without ever having to fight um I- i'd be curious like is your perspective that you know there's a lot of things happening today that is actually part of foreign intelligence uh tr- trying tr- trying to pull us apart yes i i do believe that foreign agents are playing a role here I do believe that there is direct intervention whether from Russia or China or other places into whether it's our elections or democracy broadly or important debates around you know rights of lesbians gays bisexual transgender people or um you know abortion issues or race discussions I mean so there's act active in you know it's not just those countries it's everywhere you know i mean there are cells like this for disinformation set up in israel and saudi arabia and all kinds of countries around the world so that's absolutely happening but i think the bigger issue is that we as a society for the longest time um benefited from having a somewhat centralized store of information and authority right Five o'clock news, everybody would sit down and watch the news and you would hear one single person tell you that this has happened today. That has changed now, right? So whether that person was telling you the truth or not, we were all on the same page, more or less, that facts are what we're being told. You could go research them, you could study them. There were centralized places to do that. Internet completely changed that for good, right? It was a decentralized, now we are much more decentralized. The information we get is no longer from the same source. You know, the newspaper that you probably went to to read about the shooting yesterday in Texas may not have been the same to me, and I can tell you my 11-year-old kid probably was getting all his information through Discord channels, right? Which is not where I inhabit time. So, we are all getting information from different places, but there's no centralized place to understand uh if that information is true or not. We've reached a point where we're starting to say people are feeling normal to say hey your truth is your truth my truth is my truth and i i look at that and i say what the fuck are you talking about truth is truth we're not talking religion that you may believe in this god and i may believe there's no god and you know let's all shake hands and it's fine we're not talking about things we believe in we're talking about things that actually happened or didn't happen right so i think we have a real problem where we haven't yet understood how do we find authenticity and veracity and truth so that we can inform our decision making we need to find answers to that we have to be able to find answers to that if we don't we will be as you said 5 years from now sitting there and thinking our society is completely messed up because we don't know how to understand where truth emanates from we are have we have been and we are i believe a rational society i think we are you know we are a democracy because we do eventually end up doing the right thing it may take us a long time to get there but we do end up doing the right thing in the moral arc of history but all of that depends on being able to have access to truth so that we can all understand it and make decisions you and i may disagree on on any aspect of legislation gun laws we may disagree on it but let's talk about it let's talk about facts and either i will be convinced or you will be convinced to join my camp and then we'll go figure something out but if you and i disagree if i say 19 people died yesterday and you say this was all a hoax and no 19 people died then we're no no different than the assholes who go around parts of this world telling them that there was no 911 and all of these buildings that came down in new york was a hoax then we become that people those people are not sophisticated people those people are not moral people and those people are not telling the truth because all they care about is their very narrow set of objectives we cannot become those people 
I, I love that. I love that you're talking about these things because, you know, we had Martin Gurry on the show and we, we basically spent the, the whole uh, episode just really talking about, okay, like what happened to authority or, over the last, you know, 10, 20 years with, with the rise of the internet. What is your perspective on how to solve this issue? You know, because, you know, one perspective would be that, you know, in some ways, like the genie is out of the bottle. And like now at this point that, you know, everybody's going to get their information from different sources and that's just the way it is and you know our brains in our society is adapting to that and we're just early on in the internet revolution and at the same time if you try to just you know validate what is a true statement versus what's not a true statement you, you know you end up with a weird ministry of truth that could lead to a, a lot of wrong things as well is it like is your take that this is a you know a temporary mo moment of craziness that we're adapting to this new world or you know wh where where do we go from here yeah, so there's two ways to go there. I do not want a ministry of truth <laughs> because, you know, I do not want to run into a situation that other countries have run into where it is uh, abused by those who are in power at any given time, right? I may disagree with you, but I don't want um, when I'm in power to be abusing you of your freedom uh, of speech or, you know, whatever. I think here's the part of the problem. So technology will have a role to play, right? Technology will be able to tell us this video is is real or not or fake, right? And I think we need to deploy that technology quickly and fast, right? We, we haven't yet built the infrastructure to be able to do that. It takes us manual efforts to do that. The information, the disinformation disseminates very quickly through our social networks, but then the corrections are like only for those that are really searching it, right? So most people don't hear about it. So technology will have a role to play in that. It's a little bit like when internet first came out, all of us bought computers and we all went online and suddenly we started downloading all kinds of viruses and bugs and every computer started to slow down. And guess what we did? We immediately said we need Norton antivirus and we need semantic antivirus and so on and so forth, right? And we all had to quickly figure out what to do. Now, there were people out there, grandparents who had a computer that never downloaded any antivirus and their computers were shit. But those of us who were in technology industry were like, you know, keeping it up to date. Eventually, we figured out that, hey, let's do that at the server side. We shouldn't have to do that ourselves. Why don't we just figure it out how to do that properly in the operating system level, right? So I think the similar thing will need to happen around information, where information is think of it as like an operating system that defines how we make decisions. The second thing in all of this is that we're not living in full democracy. We have this weird situation right now where it's like an oligopoly, right? Few people have tremendous resource they have no they're the first ones to say we should have full freedoms right whether it's facebook or whether it's fox news it doesn't matter right there's only a few channels that most americans listen to fox news cnn msnbc choose your favorite there's only a few social networks that have you know real scale and and these entities would want all freedom and no supervision and no fear of you know being a tool for spreading disinformation they almost like do this as a favor to us. Oh, yeah, we stopped disinformation because we thought it'd be nice to do that rather than feeling like it is their responsibility. And in fact, there will be repercussions if they don't do that. That needs to change. How do we get, if we're going down the path of becoming more democratic and more distributed, how do we make it truly distributed? Like, I wouldn't care what a crazy politician has to say on a street corner, right? Sure. They've done that all the time, all their lives. Some crazy guy shouting out whatever they're shouting out, as crazy as it might be. As long as they're not threatening anybody and not invading anybody else's personal space, they have the freedom to say what they want. The problem is when you give them a monopoly or an oligopoly of spreading that information throughout, now you have a problem. How do you manage that? You know, how do you think about FCC rules when a politician is given a national stage to go talk to the entire country and they say something that is not true, right? If a politician came on TV and said today, that 9-11 never happened. What should, what should we do about it? Should they be allowed to say that? And it's just a he said, she said, well, you believe it happened. I believe it didn't happen. So we shouldn't have done anything about it. We shouldn't do anything about it going forward. This was all drama. Like there is, there has to be thought placed on when we have a system that is allowing certain people to have very loud voices that they can influence a lot of people. How do you manage that? You can have, many, many more distributed systems, right? How do we create many, many more channels that are maybe government funded? How do we do, how do we promote uh, revenue models that allow many more of these entities to exist? I mean, certainly if you talk to my friends who are much more knowledgeable about this or the crypto world and the distributed world, they'll talk about it. That's exactly what they're trying to do, 
They're like, why should there only be one Twitter? Why can't there be anybody who wants to create something should be able to create it? And if people are attracted to it, they're attracted to it. And, you know, why should there be this? So I think that's that's where we need to eventually go, where people have more, uh, you know, those who want to fight back against disinformation have not only tools available, but also platforms available to be able to fight back. Right now, that does not exist. We have we have an army on one side and we have like only special operations on one side. Right. And and I think the two don't quite match. So, Bal, do you see this as a political problem, a mindset problem, a technology problem? I'm sure all three are intertwined, but as a technology investor, are you on the lookout for a company that says, I'm going to solve this, or I'm going to build, you know, uh, 30 Twitters. So there's information on everything. Like how, how do you think about the right way to solve this problem that you've articulated so well? I am astounded in this country that has so many important problems to solve simultaneously at local, regional, national, and international level, us being leaders of the international world in some ways. I'm astounded how often our politicians allow us and in fact force us to make decisions based on very narrow set of choices and very narrow issues. Right? I'm astounded when I see people who are themselves immigrant in this country, right, making decisions on their political futures, voting only on some religious issue associated with the abortion rights or the gay rights. Right? And I think our politicians have screwed around with us long enough to say this is a matter of Second Amendment uh, or, or First Amendment or uh, abortion laws or, you know, Judeo-Christian philosophy around gay, bisexual, lesbian rights. You know, we have we are living in a complex world. Let people have information about the complex world. Do not allow politicians to manipulate them so that they make bad choices because they care so much about one thing, perhaps because of their religion or some other reason that they can be manipulated. We have to prevent that from happening, right? We need to improve our economy because we need to improve our economy. We shouldn't be doing things that actually restrict immigration because that's actually bad for our economy. We're doing the absolute stupid, stupid thing that we can do, right? By, by restricting immigration, we're actually slowing down our economy. But, you know, some people will go up and talk in politics that, you know, the jobs being taken away from, you know, Americans and given to quote unquote non-Americans that nonsense shouldn't happen, right? Every single one of us who has a child who, who, who was gay, like you don't have to, you just have to look at their eyes and you're like, this is still my child. This, my child was yesterday, my child, when he was not known to me as a gay person. And today is my child, if he's known to me as a gay person. It is nothing to do with my fucking religion. It is about humanity, right? That is the problem. So you ask, where is the problem? The problem is that we as a country, as a democracy, have decided that as a democracy, we look up to our leaders. We elect leaders and we, we want them to act on our behalf. We want them to come to us, hear from us again and again and again what we would like, and then we enact those laws. And those politicians have decided that, hey, they don't need to actually do that. What they need to do is manip manipulate us in any way they can so that they keep getting the votes and staying in power to hell with what the what the people actually want. 90% of the people, for example, want common sense gun laws. Like 90% of the people. Yet 50 American senators refuse to vote on it. And they will say everything they can. They will blame everything. They will blame mental illness. They will blame immigrants. They will blame everything they can find for our problem of massive gun attacks around the country except to do one thing that actually will help stop those or at least prevent those, which is to ban guns and to put some restrictions on it, right? So I think that's what needs to change. And I think the change is in our hands. Like we do elect these guys, right? They don't just show up in power when they, these are not imposed on us by a communist party, not imposed on us by a military, we elect them. So if we were to get more educated about these issues and realize that why the fuck is it that I don't want my son to go to school and be shot at, Right. So I am not OK with my senator agreeing that. Why is it that we're not walking into every single, you know, senator's town hall meeting, every single, you know, uh, congressional hearing and saying, I don't give a shit what you want to talk about. Talk to me about what you're doing about guns, because I do not want my children dead. I mean, that's what it takes. You know, and I think, to be honest, I'm very angry that that's not happening. But I'm also very hopeful because if there is a country where this can happen, it would be this country. Right? We have democracy. We care about democracy. All of us can 
dislike a hundred things about this country, but we all know that we have democracy that many other countries would aspire to have. So for our listeners who are interested in building and solving these problems and taking everything you said and internalizing it and fixing a lot of this, what would you recommend they do? Is it they should be running for local office and fixing this? Should they be building technology? Of course, everyone has different strong suits, but you know, if you take a brilliant person who's motivated to fix this, what do you think the highest leverage way to start solving some of these issues is? Two words would be everything. But let me let me tell you this. It is, you know, when I graduated from grad school, I had a job offer and I said, I could just take that particular job offer in academia. I could be a professor. I would have a job. I would have a house and a dog and a car. I'll have, you know, publications to my names. Every now and then I'll get some awards. I'll have a steady salary. Once you get tenure, you're basically employed for life. And then life is good, right? There's a, I felt personally that there was a bigger responsibility on me. It wasn't good enough for me to just create a life for myself. I felt like, you know, there were 220 million people in the country that I came from that I was just one of them that got lucky, that was selected by this country to be given these scholarships to come here and study and given the opportunity. I had to do something that affected the lives of others around me, the people that are in this country, the people in the country of that I came from, right? So I had to do more. And I think all of us need to do that. It is not okay enough to feel that I'm protected because my kids go to some private school or I'm living in California, which has tighter gun laws or better you know, abortion laws or whatever. It is not okay to do that. You have to take action. Every single one of us has to take action. And that action will require being uncomfortable. It will require us to put our opinions out when somebody may become upset at it. It will require us to burn some of our political capital, some of our social capital, but you have to do that. You know, when somebody is in my company and starts talking anti-Semitic nonsense, I have to shut them up. I don't care how big a friend or relative they are of mine, because if I don't do that, they think it's okay to keep doing that. Right. But in the same way, if somebody starts bullshitting about, you know, either Muslims or Palestinians or whatever issues that I may care about, I have to also step up and say something. Because if I don't do that, then they will feel it's okay to stereotype and say nonsensical things, right? All of us have to do that. These are issues that matter to us, man. These issues, whether it's gun control, whether it's national security, whether it's our defenses, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's climate change, all of these issues matter to us. They matter to our children and our grandchildren. What do we live for otherwise, right? Like one day we will just die. We will just die and nobody's going to come, as I always say to my funeral and say, Bilal invested in these 17 companies, his IRR was this and his return rate. Nobody will say that. People will say what I stood for. People will say, was I a good human being? I hope people will say, was I a good father, good husband, good good, uh, son, right? I hope people will say, was I a good American? I think that's what I think we need to tell people to do. And I think Americans, if they understood that and took action, we can make a change happen. Dude, we don't need 25, 30, 50 years. Yes, I know some of those rights have taken decades, sometimes centuries to get, but we've also made changes in short periods of time. You know, we went to moon very, very quickly, right? We, we have done things fast when we have wanted to, but it has required mobilization of America to do that. And I think we need to do that. So part of what I do when I talk about defense tech and investing in defense sector and national security sector is to be taking that pulpit that I've got and saying, guys, this is important shit. We're not warmongers here. We're not asking for fights. We're not trying to go go bomb somewhere else in the world. I am from the part of the world where the bombs are being thrown by predator drones. My family lives there, right? What I'm trying to do is how do you build national security instruments so that we can actually prevent war from happening? We can actually stop terrorists in in their footsteps. That is what we have to do. And I think it's very, very doable, but it will require all of us to take responsibility and to be honest, be willing to pay the cost that that will incur upon us. I, I love that, Bilal, and it's su- super inspiring and, you know, uh, grateful to be in a place where we can actually do those things, right? Um, to talk about the places where we cannot do those things, um, I'll be curious, There's there's been a lot of talks around deglobalization, uh, and, and I guess uh, the, the first question I have for you is, do you think we're headed for a future of de- deglobalization? And then the second question related specifically to, to the CCP, um, do you think that we're headed 
for a world specifically within the venture community uh, that we're going to have a very significant reckoning for all of the people that quite frankly have been funding top tier so uh, ccp technology you know where you know since time the company that is monitoring the U- uyghurs in xinjiang is funded partially by american investors <laughs> is that ending soon uh what's your perspective on both of these topics so if i'm optimistic about the possibilities of bringing about a change in america i'm also optimistic about a change happening in in china and 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 russia and other places right i i think i i'm always very uh upfront that for every corrupt controlling barbaric regime that there is there are people in those countries that are literally risking their lives every single day to fight for freedoms let's not forget them right whether it's russia whether it's china whether it's iran north korea whatever right i mean they may not be many they may not be things that we know about or things they do that we hear about but they are doing that and i think hopefully in the long run in the arc of history i think they will be successful but it'll be a long long time to come in the short term so in the long term i would say that i think we will go back to globalization we will go back to where people are relying on each other to support each other to build together and to share resources with each other because there's no simply simply no other way you know the lot of resources we consume tend to be global in nature think about climate change right and we've all talked about in the past you know how climate change is you know one of the biggest uh, challenges for the next generation or for this generation right climate change doesn't happen locally it happens globally if china started polluting the earth all of us would be paying the price what are we going to do are we going to launch a nuclear weapon on them to destroy their factories so that they can't pollute right like i i think about you know in the long term we will have to figure out how to work together but absolutely in the short and medium term the world has changed and the world has changed because power has been consolidated in in a few people and a few parties their national objectives are not only misaligned with us but in some ways you know uh, strictly focused on destabilizing the us us dollar hegemony and us interests worldwide right so they are by design in some ways at war with us we have to just accept it that that's the case it's happening in space it's happening in oceans it could happen tomorrow in taiwan but it's certainly happening in supply chains and so on and so forth so certainly we have to then figure out what is our action that we're going to take we can't sit on our hands and have you know majority in fact the vast majority of our chips that power basically everything be made in a country that we could be made hostile to oh, uh, that could be hostile to us and take hostage of our supply chains right so we have to change that and we have to have the national impetus to be able to change that i do believe that the world has changed over the last few years very dramatically i do believe that there is a very strong focus on reshoring uh technologies that we had given to them for manufacturing that bringing it back to the us or at least to the friendly nations that will be happening there will be investments made to do that there will be um definitely uh, restrictions on the ability to partner up in china and 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 work with companies there some good companies that have nothing to do with national security interests of china will probably get rolled into this and unfortunately suffer the consequences that, that will be the case i do believe that for too long uh few entities have benefited from investing in china i'm not suggesting that they were doing it nefariously or they did it because they wanted to destabilize or be part of some global conspiracy to destabilize america they just thought of it as the frontier right and making money while the sun shines right uh and uh, and i think they're not going to be able to do that anymore playing sort of loose and go- loosey goosey and you know with uh, with companies that you know impinge on individual privacies human rights whether it's uggers or otherwise uh that share data from the us that could be considered national security related data um that will not be tolerated anymore for a while that was just not we we did not pay enough attention to it now we're realizing oh my god you know the biggest drone company for commercial purposes in the us is a chinese company though their drones were being used to create high resolution imagery of some of the most sophisticated most important nationally national security critical sites around the world right uh, you know taking high resolution imagery of power plants and manufacturing facilities and bridges and all kinds of stuff and now we're like fuck did we send all this data to china 
it, why did we not think about it? Well, you know, five, 10 years ago, it's like, you know, it's a Chinese engineer started a company. Who cares? You know, Chinese government is probably using them like everybody else is well, using them. I mean, them, it, it, even worse than that, right, Bilal? Like we, we thought that by giving them all these things that somehow we were, we were, we were helping them to get to democracy as well. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's look, uh, there was a time period where the hope was that if we can give them all of this commercial technology to move towards greater economic successes, that they will move towards greater degree of you know, democracy and openness in their society. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And uh, power became even more consolidated uh, and their national interests became even more misaligned with our national interests. And it's a different world and we have to act differently. Right. No, I, I, I cannot agree more. This is an amazing overview. I am curious to bring it back to the technology and investment side of the building. How do you think, you know, the desire to solve all of these problems and build, especially technology, because that's what a lot of our listeners are focused on. So building technology to solve a lot of these core issues pairs with the current economic status that our country is in, right? It's a down market. It's, you know, people are saying, uh, if you're a company, conserve all the cash you can. How do you get to multiple years of runway? If you're a founder who wants to go build in this climate, what advice would you have for them? Is this a bad time to build a company to solve these pressing problems? Is it a good time? What's your advice? I'm not the only one. I think this is a common refrain now. This is the best time to build. It has always been. This is not the first down cycle our economy is facing. I have lived through three of them, right? So there are others in this who have lived even more cycles. Um, some of the best companies are usually built during these times. Why? Because again, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? Like it's been said for a reason. I said, I grew up in a society where did not have electricity, that did not have water, that did not have easy transportation, that did not have, you know, freedoms of speech and privacy. So I care about those things and I'm building and investing in those companies. So today, when, you know, when the resources are tight, people are going to focus on problems that are real problems. They're going to be less focused on frivolous things. We're not going to be building, you know, random places where you mint, you know, figurines and sell to each other and make money by just selling it to each other, right? And to unsuspecting souls that, you know, collect these JPEGs and you will become rich someday, right? Wait, but well, your NFT collection is not massive? I thought you it had it. It's not massive, days. and I hope it never is. But I have nothing against NFT as an idea, but I think what was happening in the last few years was stupidity, right? And, and I think uh, the... And then nothing against NFT either. I think there were other stupid things we were doing too. We were doing small things. We were not solving the big problems when they were right before our eyes. You know, it's like I said, automotive industry for 25 years was solving stupid problems. They were adding more cup holders in our cars. They were making sure that our fucking beer could be kept cold and our coffee could be kept hot when what they needed to be doing was to improve fuel efficiency so we are less reliant on foreign fuel, electrification so that we can actually produce our, our power and do clean transportation. They weren't doing that. They had to get a you know kick up their butt from somebody from the outside coming in and creating competition for them to suddenly, everybody has an electric car. It, if it wasn't for Tesla, it wouldn't be there. I think, and Tesla was created in the down cycle. Tesla was started post-2001, right? When Elon Musk is sitting there saying, well, what am I going to do? E-commerce is not exactly working out. Let me go to Mars and let me go build electric cars, right? That's how two of the most amazing companies got created. Palantir got created in post-9-11, right? To post-2001, right? So I think there's a great opportunity, great time for now for people to build those businesses. And VCs are looking at those businesses. I can tell you, now, Lux is seen as one of those funds that invest in these cutting edge technologies, breakthrough technologies, deep tech, whatever people want to call it. I am now getting inbound emails from investors who were previously chasing stupid shit, who are like, hey, I've been thinking about, you know, we also do a little bit in deep tech. Are there interesting things we should maybe partner on? And I love it. I love it. You know why? It, it doesn't mean that there's free capital flowing into our companies, but the point is that they are looking at ideas that seem more real to them right? Versus not real. Um, and, and I think people will be focusing on the kind of technologies I talked about, you know, that, that, that will get built. I am on the board of this company called Evolve. Evolve Technologies build, uses advanced sensor technology to detect guns. Uh, they have, you know, hundreds, you know, more than a thousand sensors around the world that are like preventing guns from going in. They've scanned, you know, 
hundreds of millions of people. They have collected tens of thousands of guns and stopped them from going into places where they have no business being in, in shopping malls and stadiums, in schools, right? And uh, this company was created about nine years ago, which is, you know, around the time when the world had fallen apart after 2008 and people were like, what are we going to do? That's when these founders started as an EIR with, with us and be like, you know, hey, let's solve real interesting problems. And this is a problem that they realized because, you know, the Sandy Hook massacre happened and they're like, let's go build that. So I think people are going to find real problems and build those solutions. Now, today, this is a public company. And, and providing a really valuable solution, a technological solution to a problem. Now, it may not be the end all be all. It cannot completely prevent all gun violence, but certainly technology is playing a role in trying to prevent it and making it more difficult for terrorists to do what they would like to do. So I think this will, this will happen more often. Founders today uh, are looking to do things that are more meaningful. They're saying, okay, if I'm going to be, you know, not in a hype cycle where suddenly my stock options are worth billions and I can retire. I might as well be working on something I've always wanted to work on. And nobody wants to work on stupid shit. Like there are very few people who want to work on stupid shit. They all want to find meaning, which is why even stupid ideas, their founders would be like, you know, we have this NFT and it's going to change the world because they want to change the world. What they really want to do is change the world, but they haven't yet found the idea that would actually do that. So that they end up with stupid ideas. I'm very bullish that over the next few years, we will see companies come out that five, 10 years from now, we will look back the way we now look back at Nest and Tesla and SpaceX and Palantir and so on and so forth, Moderna. And so that's the kind of stuff that people are investing in now. I, I love that, Bilal. And, and that sounds like a very uh, good crisis of conscience that, that, that people are having. But, you know, so we talked a lot about, you know, the advice that you'd give to founders when building in, the, in, in these markets. Um, what is the advice that you'd give to founders when wanting to work with the government? You know, we see a lot of founders that say, hey, I'm going to build this business in enterprise. And, you know, I know how to sell to companies. I know how to sell it, how to, you know, build a go-to-market channel to get to direct to consumers. But working with government, it's its own beast. And that is intimidating to a lot of people that would, would actually want to build in the sector. So what's your advice on that side? And then how should government be better, you know, could be better working with those startups? Look, number one, even when you're selling into enterprises, when you sell into a small company, there's a single decision maker, it's an easy sell. When you're selling into a large enterprise, if you're selling into a large city bank or something, you have many different stakeholders, many different sign-offs you need to get, different priorities. Technology guys can be the gatekeepers, but then the business guys, the compliance guys, the CFO's office, the GC, they many people. So you have to understand how to sell into a large enterprise. You can't just walk into it and be like, hey, man, you like my technology? Why don't you buy it? Right. There's a process. There's a whole. So you have to learn how to do that. Now, the important thing is in enterprises, in a traditional enterprise, that knowledge is uh, somewhat more easily available. You can hire people who have that experience. You can hire a great VP of sales. You can hire a great VP of marketing or business development to figure out how to do business with these enterprises. You don't hire a, go, a consumer go-to-market person if you're selling into law firms, right? So you have, to, you have to find the right entity and you can get that. Now, government is a different beast. Uh, government has its own incentive structure. Government has its own decision-making authorities and, and often very distributed and very cumbersome, which has evolved over decades because people tried to bungle with the money or, you know, tried to prevent um, corruption and ended up with a convoluted process. So number one is to understand that you have to first take hold of what it takes to sell into the particular customer which part of the government we're talking about. Selling into a local government is very different than selling into the Department of Defense. Even within Department of Defense, there's hundreds of different people you sell to. So it's very different to sell to special operations forces versus Navy. Right? So you have to understand that. The second thing, so, so understanding that and knowing where the resources are and trying to find those resources that can educate you and then be a part of your team is a key, key value prop of leaders in those organizations. And when we're looking to invest, it's not just looking at the technology and the solution, but also looking at their ability to penetrate these markets and sell into these markets that we evaluate. The second thing is that, you know, for a long time, society in general has thought about, um, you know, the military guys as like doing good work on behalf of the country. So, you know, you just salute them and let them be and don't ask any questions, don't hold them accountable to too much. They're just kind of doing what they're doing because they're doing good work. The same thing we've done with the with the tech industry, which we always thought of it as, you know, have for a long time thought of it as 
you know, bunch of kids eating pizza, coding in their backyards and creating games and social networks and that type of stuff. Today, that's not true, right? Technology has penetrated every single aspect of our life. It is vastly influencing decision-making at every level of our society and is playing an important part where it's changing governments, leading to changing of governments around the world, right? And military at the same time is no longer, you know, just a peacetime military. We're fighting distributed terrorists, you know, knocking down doors in Fallujah, right? And we are fighting in Russia through a, effectively a proxy war, right? And we are preparing for maybe a conflict in Indochina Pacific, right? In the Pacific Ocean uh, with, with China. We're fighting cyber uh, on, on the cyber front against Iranians and, and, and uh, North Koreans and Russians. Uh, we have many fights going on all around the place, not to mention what's happening in space, which is another area where you know, people don't hear about much, but there's actually warfare going on. Uh, people flexing their muscles to show what they're capable of doing in space. In that world, we have to hold people accountable and have them talk to each other, right? You know, we have a responsibility that the tech industry goes out and tells people what we do, how we do, how we make decisions, how we think about, you know, ethics in AI and machine learning, how we think about using our technology for good uh, and building technology that could be used for national security. And simultaneously, the military needs to come out and have more conversations with the rest of the world and the rest of the country, especially to say, this is what we're doing. These are the mistakes we make. We're not perfect. There is something called collateral damage. This is where it happens. And the use of technology can actually reduce the collateral damage. That, that's what we're trying to get at. Our, our military superiority can actually reduce the, the possibility of an actual war, right? So I think that is something that is not being done enough. And I think it needs to happen now. When I'm going, talk, going out and giving talks, that's what I say. I say, you need to talk about your mission and you need to talk about you know, what you're trying to accomplish and how you're trying to accomplish. And by the way, think about all the ways that you could change the processes, right? You know, the military will not start buying like a tech company, but the tech company also cannot wait 16 years to send, sell technology to the military. We'll have to find new mechanisms to make that happen. I, I think that's great advice. And I hope that on both ends, it ends up moving closer to get to something where it makes it easier for these technology companies to work with the government. So Abol, to wrap things up quickly, what would be your uh, kind of 30 second piece of advice on uh, what our listeners should do if they care about the future of America and Western values, what would you say they should do? What's the one-liner kind of you would give them to wrap this up? People underestimate the power they have in a country like America, which is a democracy. Use that power, take a hold of it, and stand up for what you truly believe in. It is okay to be a complex person. It is okay for me to be a Muslim, but be okay with gay marriage. It is okay for me to be a Pakistani as well as an American citizen. It is okay for me to invest in defense technology, but be anti-war, right? It is okay to do that. I fight for all of those things because I care about those things. And there are probably other things that I should care even more for and I will care for in the future. I think all of us can make that difference at every single level. Participate in politics, participate in discussions. You know, voting is not just about showing up one day and, and casting a vote. It's about having your voice heard so that other people can hear things that they may not know about, get facts that they may not know about, and, uh, and making a difference. At the end of the day, if we lose democracy, we've lost it all. And that is our biggest strength. We just have to use that to shut down the assholes who are right now doing things that Americans don't want, but they try to tell us that this is what we want. Love it. Bilal, thank you so much for doing this today. Awesome, man. It's always lovely to talk to you guys. You guys are doing awesome work. Thank you for keep pushing the frontiers, man. <laughs>